Live from the Jacob Media Studios, it's Serving Our Nation with Dr. Paul McCullough on News Talk 1400 WOND. Be inspired, learn and understand the power of becoming a servant leader and transform your life while serving our nation. Meet those who have served our country. Learn about prosperity and overcome sickness, poverty, and despair. Serving Our Nation begins right now. Good afternoon and welcome to episode 15 of Serving Our Nation on News Talk 1400 WOND. I'm your host, Reverend Dr. Paul McCullough, and before we do anything else, I want to wish everyone listening a very happy Memorial Day weekend. And today's episode is focused on a tribute to all those who have given the ultimate sacrifice for our country. If today is the first time that you're listening to the program, I just want to share briefly with you the heart behind Serving Our Nation. This is a program that is focused on encouraging people to become servant leaders. I want to offer you hope and encouragement through stories each week of people that are servant leaders in all walks of life. Because I truly believe that when you honor God and serve other people, blessings just naturally follow from that as a natural byproduct. Because serving is for everyone in all walks of life. And you've seen that demonstrated week after week in our previous guest. In the area of military, you've heard from Rear Admiral Kent Davis. In business, just last week, Miss Erica Webster. In faith, a couple weeks ago, Reverend George Probasco. In community, Miss Missy Gingrich. And in family, Mr. Danny Nolan. And all these people have represented to you that when you see a need, you need to fill that need because regardless of what your occupation is we are all ministers we are given special gifts by God and we're called we're obligated to use those special gifts to serve other people and I just want to share with you a little bit about me because it's relevant to today's show I retired from the army in June of 2018 and I come from a long line of people that served in the military my father was a Vietnam veteran and those two facts relate directly to today's guest. In honor of Memorial Day weekend, in tribute to that, I have two incredible guests for you today. The first is Mr. Ralph Gelati. He's a veteran. He's a Vietnam POW for 14 months. And he has served on multiple boards and was a strategic advisor for J-Dog Brands. And the second half, I have Lieutenant General David Bassett. He's a career army officer, and in case you're not familiar with military lingo, a lieutenant general is a three-star general. He's the director of the Defense Contract Management Agency, and he also officiated my retirement from the Army in 2018. I am very, very excited about these two guests, and when we come back from the break, I'll be joined by Mr. Ralph Gelati. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Serving means making sacrifices, and it epitomizes putting others before ourselves to continue making the United States the greatest country in the world. I am honored to have served this country and am thankful for all others who have also served. But serving doesn't end when we take off the military uniform. The military is an extended family, and our shared values, goals, and experiences continue when we become veterans. We must always remember and support those currently in the military and those who are now military veterans.
Welcome back to Serving Our Nation on News Talk 1400 WOND. I'm your host, Reverend Dr. Paul McCullough, and I first want to give special thanks to Rear Admiral Kent Davis, who was able to give us those remarks that you just heard. I'm joined here today by Mr. Ralph Galati. Ralph, are you on the line with us? I'm here. Sir, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the program today. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate your invitation. Thank you. Well, Ralph, you have a very, very long legacy and an incredible career, but if it's okay, I want to just start off with your military experience, and I won't hold it against you that you didn't join the varsity team of the Army, but I would like to know, what made you want to join the military? Like, when you joined the Air Force, and, you know, what was the heart behind that? Yeah, I'm only slightly offended by that. <laughs> um, um, I, I think I always had the desire to, to serve all my uh, family had served in World War II, except for my dad, uh, who had a medical issue. And I think that caused me to want to want to go in. And uh, I ended up going to St. Joe's University here in Philly, and they had Air Force ROTC, which I think compelled me to go there more than any other school. And uh, as it turned out, that was the right move for me, and I went to ROTC. And when I graduated in 1970, I was commissioned on the same date and went on into the Air Force. Wow, that's awesome. And I got to tell you, uh, my father was in the military, my grandfather before him, and that was also a large part of the driving force why I wanted to join the military as well, so I certainly understand that. Yeah. Well, Ralph, I, one of the most uh, storied things about your career and your life is the fact that you were a Vietnam POW. So, you know, I don't know what you're comfortable sharing, but, you know, I'd appreciate any thoughts and uh, circumstances that you may be able to share with us concerning the capture, you know, of uh, when you became sure. that POW and how that took place and what that was like for you. Sure. And um, you got to realize in 1970 when I went in, the, the Vietnam War was still going on, although it was toward the end. Uh, but but the, the risk was still there. And going into flight school, we knew that if you survived flight school, you were probably going en route to Southeast Asia somewhere. So, sure. so all those things were on the table. Um, I ended up uh, training in the F-4 Phantom, which is a two-seat jet fighter. And when I finished that, uh, in the fall of 71, I went right to Ubon Air Base, which is in Thailand, and started flying combat missions right away in November of 71. And, you know, did some upgrading there while I was there. I, I, my whole life, I think, has been uh, imaged by people always saw more in me than I ever did myself. Mm. And I think that's probably true of a lot of folks. And I was fortunate that people gave me chances that I didn't think I deserved or earned. But I made my way up the ranks kind of quickly and ended up flying my last mission as a forward air controller called a Wolf Sack. And that was when we were shot down on the 16th of February of 72, my pilot and I, in one of the early missions back over North Vietnam since the ceasefire in 1968. So you got shot down on the 16th of February. And so, I mean... What took place? I mean, when you were shot down, did they like automatically come on you? Did you hide out for a couple of days? What was yeah, that like we, for you? Yeah, we yeah we took a lot of, of fire, and then we took SAM missiles, and we evaded most of them until until one of them you know came up at our six o'clock, and we just didn't see it. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was it was bad timing all around. I mean, we were we'd been up there for a couple of hours. We were taking fire. Um, it was Tet, which is a big holiday in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. We ejected. Uh, over North Vietnam, over enemy territory. Our plane crashed in a village. Right near where we were bombing, and then because we ejected so low, we ended up floating right down in the same village. So wow. we really had no chance for evasion or escape. We were just 
we were just hoping to survive the landing. Yeah. And um, and I was fortunate. I mean, we survived the uh, impact of the of the sand surface air missile. We survived the ejection, and so that was two out of two. And then we just hoped to survive the landing. We did that, and then we just hoped not to be killed by the townspeople who who really were determined to um, to do that. Uh, because we had no chance to escape, so we landed there, and you know there were 100 or 200 people there waiting for us. And, wow! And, and we were we were brought to safety only by what we deemed to be either a guard person or a reservist or some paramilitary guy who probably had enough orders or savvy to realize that if he captured an alien floating down in space and got them to Hanoi. Uh, they would probably get some kind of bonus or reward, and that's probably the only reason we survived that day. Wow. And, and then 24 hours later, you know, we made it from the southernmost part of North Vietnam up to the almost northernmost part, which is Hanoi, and, uh, you know, we were still driving through Americans bombing that area. So, wow. uh, you know, you look back and say, you know, it, there was some reason why we were saved that day, but, but that's when the games began the next day. Yeah. And how long did that last for you? Uh, well, I was there till the following morning. So it was so 14 and a half months. Uh, the first 75 days after a period of isolation, a week or so of interrogations and starvation and things like that, then we were put in solitary confinement. So the first 75 days was solitary. And that was, that was the toughest grind, was being really by yourself. And, yeah. And I know one of your questions was, you know, what was on what was the memorable moment? Other than your repatriation, it was when some guy, after about a month or so, um, knocked, you know, kind of made a pass through my cell gate uh, door and threw a stick at me. And when I opened, I looked at it, it was hollow, and I looked inside, and it was a note, and it basically was another American sending me a note, basically saying, you know, keep the faith, you're not alone, you know, we're with you you know, fight the battle, and you know, hopefully you'll have a roommate soon. Wow. And that was probably the most rejuvenating thing, not to know that I wasn't alone, but also that some other American took a significant risk to make sure that I was protected. So that was my, my first mentor in North Vietnam. Wow, that is really something. So if you don't mind my asking, I mean, what was the sure. rest of the time like for you? I mean, were you treated humanely? Did they torture you? I mean, yeah. I, I can't imagine the memories and the scars that you would have from something yeah. like that. I mean, you know, the, the first week of isolation and all is usually, you know, one of boredom, you know, surrounded by you know, periods of terror. And, and you know, it's, it's really sleep-deprived and, and food-deprived and no medical attention. I had a head injury and they didn't take care of that. And then it was interrogations and attempts at propaganda and beatings and, you know, and, and you know, because you're, you don't have your wits about you and you, you don't have any food or stamina, you know, you you really have to fight that battle to be sure that you're upholding the code of conduct. Which Absolutely. Is our, our moral compass. Yeah. And, you know, name rank serial number date of birth only gets you so far, especially when you don't have your wits about you. So that was, that was the worst time. And surviving that first week and realizing that I was probably an idiot anyway. I mean, it was only a first lieutenant. So you know what that was like. Yeah. Um, they probably realized I didn't know much, and I just, I said, you know, pretty much, I said, look, I'm an Italian from South Philly, and you know, I'm a lieutenant. What the hell do I know? <laughs> and, I, and I think they probably believed me. So, so I managed to survive most of that because of uh, that portrayal. But they probably had, you know, other folks that uh, 
were more senior that probably had better intel to deliver than I did. Sure. Well, with something that went on for 14 and a half months, I mean, I, I have to imagine that something like that profoundly impacted your life. I mean, how did that carry over when you came back home and, you know, you started like reintegrating into the world and your life? Yeah, in a roundabout way, it was really interesting. Uh, one was, one was I was surrounded by people that were older than me and outranked me once we got roommates. So I had 30 guys in my room at one time, all that outranked me. So I had 30 mentors to wow. give me advice and counsel. You know, once we were able to communicate with yeah. each other. So I learned a lot about myself and the military and parenting and adulthood. And, and that was really good. Wow. Uh, the other thing, though, was, you know, the guys that were shot down before us, guys that were there from August of 63, 64, I mean, eight and a half years and they survived and our job was you know if they could do it you know we could hold our breath a little bit longer and right in there right but we also delivered a message to them because they remembered the anti-war protests of the 60s and thought that that was the world they were coming back to which in a sense it was but when we delivered the message about the POW MIA campaign the bracelets and the flags and the fact that we had not been forgotten or abandoned mm-hmm uh, that was a really significant boost to morale, and probably carried them, you know, till our you know eventual repatriation in February and March of '73. So those things are memorable to me, and that they were very, very developmental for somebody that like me that was a pretty young age. Wow, I love that. So you talked about having 30 mentors. How has that experience enabled you to bless and to serve others throughout your life now that, you know, you've come back and you've learned all these lessons? Well, especially with IBM, I mean, I tried to be less of a manager and more of a mentor. Okay. Uh, and, and I learned that as well. To, I think that served me well. Yeah. And it really wasn't a big transition. I mean, IBM had 400,000 people. The Air Force had 500,000. So I just traded uniforms, and, and that was, you know, not a big, big transition. Uh, but I think a lot of it was about carrying that mission that I know you talk about every week about so, about service to others and mentoring. And, mm-hmm. and you know, a, a good boss is one that's always looking to find somebody good enough to replace them. Yes. And if we don't develop that, then shame on us. Uh, but you have to have enough self-confidence to figure you'll get another job and, and get somebody else to develop. So I, I think... You know, with the military and promotions all the time, and, you know, you're always having a new boss every two or three or four years. You're relocating, you're moving, people are reassigned. It's it's a state of flux. And that's one thing you learn in the military is being able to adapt better to that flux. And and uh, I brought that with me to the business world because a lot of folks were, you know, used to being in one location forever. Yeah. Uh, so I think those, those small things, for example, being mission-focused and adapting to change and handling crises, uh, things that you experienced, but you didn't look at them as lessons necessarily were traits that were carried on into your business life. Absolutely. Well, you know, looking at your bio, you've received countless leadership awards and sales awards at IBM and a multitude of other places. Is it fair to say that the lessons that you learned as a POW about, you know, adapting to change and being mission-focused and being a mentor to other people, is that the reason why you've been recognized so many times? Uh I, I guess so. I, I think that probably helped indirectly. I never gave it much conscious thought, but I still go back to, I think my first and second and third line managers um, saw that experience that I had uh, eight years in the military as a military officer 
uh, carried a lot of weight and had some characteristics and attributes different than the regular college hire. Yeah. And, and I probably exhibited those subconsciously, and yeah. they saw some things in me that I didn't. And, and I think that helped me achieve. And the one thing about IBM that was, you know, promotions and awards and recognition were all merit-based. Yeah. I mean, you either, you either achieve it or you didn't. It was very binary. And uh, so I think those traits carried with me whether I understood them or not. Okay. That's fair. Well, I know that after IBM, you also went into education. So I just wonder, did those same traits and characteristics, attributes that you're talking about, did they also carry over into your work with education? And is that how you're able to kind of serve college students in that regard? What was that like for you? I think I think the military traits carried over to everything I ever did. Yeah, uh, I always wanted to teach. And uh, when I got out of the military, I mean, I had a chance to teach my last couple of years in the military, and I, and I really enjoyed it. Um, once I once I accepted the fact that I was not a total dolt, <laughs> <laughs> that I could probably command the floor a little bit, that I had some public speaking ability, that yeah. I could project myself. Yeah. Uh, once I had the skills from the business side, I started teaching, you know, evening programs, adult learners, and and that was absolutely rewarding. And and I took teaching the same way I take public speaking in that you never know what nugget, what sentence, what something you might say to some student that might change their path for the better. Yes. And, and you may never know it, but you have to take it seriously enough to know that everything you say is going to be taken and either accepted or rejected. And, and so, you know, I still take that very seriously that, that what I say is probably going to be impactful, even if it's only to one person at a time. I love that. Well, you know, something else that really struck me when I was reading through your bio, you've been married for 50 years, and you've done so many other <laughs> things. Besides being an Air Force veteran, IBM, and education, I mean, you also serve on a ton of boards. So my question to you is, how have you been able to stay married for 50 years while serving in all these different roles? Well, you have to be married to a saint. That's the first <laughs> thing. Uh, but the other one, you know, now that I'm retired, you know, you have the luxury of a little bit of time, and... and and if you're not careful, you could just uh, debilitate yourself with inactivity. So, yeah. um, but the point is, right now, in the last ten years or so, I've committed myself to veterans' causes, since that seems to be my sweet spot. Mm -hmm. So everything that I do kind of carries that moniker with me. Either we're doing a direct veterans activity, or I'm an organization that has an opportunity to do some support work with veterans. And um, fortunately since the post 9 11 era you know americans are they might not like what's going on for 20 years in the middle east but at least they value the soldier and the sailor and the airman and marine as opposed to what it was like in the 60s and 70s yeah so if we could capture those folks early enough my message to folks is you may not have one in your family but you got one in your neighborhood and your church or wherever uh -huh. uh, thank you for their service but then ask them if they're getting their benefits and if not you know challenge them to do so either call me or call somebody else so that's our mission is getting them benefits, getting them jobs, getting them health care where they need it, and the same thing for their families. That's great. Well, Ralph, we've got about a minute left, so my last question to you. I mean, with all the different things that you've done in your career, what advice would you give to maybe a young service member, particularly, you know, with all the conflicts that are still going on, maybe that service member might become a POW one day. What advice would you give to young military people that are listening right now? Well, a lot of it is... Uh, it, it was a great amount of pride to have served and honored to wear the uniform. 
And, and the rewards, I think, are beyond measure. The things about leadership and, and national service and the fact that you will mature beyond your expectations, that you'll have personal development beyond your expectations, yes. and the fact that you're performing public service, um, those traits are only you know, less than a percent of our population, people that go into the military. So yes. whether you're coming out of high school and you want to enlist or going through OCS or ROTC or the service academy, uh, you will find that that two, four, or 20 years uh, will go by quickly, but the traits you learn there will really lead you into a path beyond your peers. Amen. Ralph, it has been a privilege and an honor to have you on the program today. I can't thank you enough for joining us. Well, continued success in your program, and thanks for including me. Thanks so much, Ralph. When we come back from the break, I'll be joined by Lieutenant General David Bassett. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Serving Our Nation on News Talk 1400 WOND. I'm your host, Reverend Dr. Paul McCullough, and I'm joined here today by Lieutenant General David Bassett. Sir, are you on the line? I am, Paul. How are you? I am well, sir. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to join me here today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Sir, you have done so many different things with your career, but I think the most logical place to start is why you wanted to join the military and the Army specifically. What was that like for you? Well, you know, I came from a military family. My father was uh, a lieutenant colonel, uh, had gone to West Point, had taught at West Point. And uh, if I'm really being honest with you, I needed a way to pay for college when the time came. And so for me, ROTC and an ROTC scholarship was the kind of the logical next step. Uh, I didn't really envision at the time that that was going to turn into what is likely be a 35-year Army career for me. Wow, 35 years. You know, sir, I had a very similar experience when uh, I was a senior in high school, and I told my father where I wanted to go. Uh, He said to me, well, son, that's a pretty expensive school, and I can help you for a little bit, but I don't think I can afford four years there. So you might want to consider ROTC. So for me, it was the same thing. It was a way to help pay for college. But I only did 20 years, 35 years. That is so impressive. Yeah, thanks, Paul. It uh, it kind of sneaks up on you. I think, uh, like a lot of officers, my plan was to go in for uh, the initial four-year obligation, and as I approached the end of that obligation, there were new opportunities, schooling opportunities, command opportunities. Uh, it, was, uh, it was something that I found that I had a real passion for and uh, that we had a, uh, our family had a commitment for. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and over the years now, there's not been a great off-ramp. It's always been one chance, one opportunity after another. Sure. And uh, re- really enjoying uh, what I think is probably my final uh, uh, opportunity in the in the Army right now inside the Defense Contract Management Agency. Well, sir, with all the things that you've done and the rank that you've achieved as a three-star general, I really like your insight on what does servant leadership mean to you as an Army senior leader? What do you think of when you hear that phrase? So, so I've spent a lot of years thinking about servant leadership, and really uh, I think it's about a mindset that says, that uh, the leadership in any given organization has uh, uh, obviously an obligation to accomplish the mission. But in many cases, in fact, in almost all cases, the people that are performing that mission uh, is not the leader themselves, but rather the folks from across that organization that you've got to 
enable. You've got to put the right policies in place, the right procedures in place, set the kind of priorities and resources, uh, and set the culture that allows those people to succeed. And so uh, I think it's a mindset shift from one where you start from a position that the people are there to serve the leader, but rather where uh, the leader's job is to facilitate the success of the people that are really getting that job done for the organization. Uh, and I think when you, when you start there, the idea of toxic leadership is something that's almost impossible in an in a organization led by a servant leader. Yes. Uh, because you certainly couldn't engage in those kind of toxic behaviors when you know that your job is uh, to, to really encourage and facilitate the success of uh, the rank and file within that team. And so I think it's just an entirely different mindset than maybe some people think when they think about military leadership. Sorry, I love that so much, and it reminds me of my time in Kuwait when I had first taken command there uh, for DLA, uh, Defense Logistics Agency. I was asked to go there and run a support team, and the guy that I took over from, he had very much a toxic culture that was in place, and a lot of people wanted to leave. And I said, listen, just give me a little bit of time, and if you don't like it after that, then okay, fine. You want to transfer, okay. But I told them exactly what you had just said, that you know, I want to work for you. I want to help to make you and this organization a success. And when they could see that I really meant that, people were on board and they went from this idea of wanting to leave right away and put in paperwork to actually shifting gears and saying, I want to put in paperwork to stay until you leave. So I completely yeah. agree with you, sir. Yeah, for sure. I, I, there's, a, there's an old saying that people don't quit. Uh, they don't quit jobs, they quit bosses. Yes. And, uh, and, and establishing that kind of culture and really meaning it. Because an organization, if you come in, and you say that you're committed to serving them and then all of your behaviors uh, don't prove that out over time, right. uh, they're going to get jaded as well. Yep. And so I very much view this, you know, leadership is a long game. Uh, and and uh, the people that you lead are going to watch the way you behave uh, in a in hundred different imprints more than they're going to listen to anything you say. Yes. Uh, and it's about demonstrating that over time. Well, sir, with the 35 years that you've done, I mean, how have you been able to serve others throughout your career? Obviously, you've had a lot of different command billets and leadership and things of that nature, but how have you been able to really put it into practice? So, so I, think, I think, Paul, one of the things that drew me to the, to the part of the military that I serve in, and that is, uh, you know, I serve in what's called the Army Acquisition Corps, mm -hmm. and I know you served in it as well. Uh, the Army Acquisition Corps is about giving our soldiers uh, the tools that they need, the technology they need, the capabilities they need, so that they're never in a fair fight on our uh, on, on our battlefields uh, now or in the future. And so when you're in a career field that I think is, is there to support the rest of the force, yes. I think it lends itself really well uh, to being able to serve others as well. And so I'd say over the last uh, nearly 10 years that I've been a general officer, uh, I've, I've dedicated a fair amount of my time to, to talking to uh, groups of leaders that have been selected for command, helping prepare them uh, for the challenges that they're going to face, talking about my approach to leadership and my approach to, you know, our acquisition profession of contracting and logistics and engineering yes. and, and bringing some professionalism to that, knowing that, uh, that, that ultimately we are the, uh, we have a, a lot of customers. We have you know, our first customer, first and foremost, is those soldiers that we serve. Uh, but, you know, second, it's also the taxpayers whose 
whose taxes are paying for all of these capabilities uh, for our military, where we want to get as much value as we possibly can for those resources. And it, it, it is never lost on me uh, that I want to treat that taxpayer dollar uh, as if it were my own and that I'm going to care for it and ensure that we deliver value for both the soldiers and the American people. Uh, and so I think that, that notion of service is a little different maybe than most soldiers, mm-hmm. uh, but it's one that I think helps drive the kind of outcomes we need to, to really get our soldiers. Uh, and now in my current job, our, our airmen and our Marines and our sailors, the kind of capabilities they need. Wow. Well, sir, with the very long career that you have, I, I'm curious what your most memorable moment might be. What stuck out to you? I mean, from my perspective, you know, in the 20-year career that I've had, one of the most important things to me was my retirement, where I had the opportunity to have you officiate the sermon. I will never, ever forget that. But what was the most important thing to you that has really stuck out in your career? You know, I think uh, if, if I were going to try to pull one thing out, and by the way, I do want to be clear, I've served for 33 uh, now. I've got about, I think, two years left uh, in my current position. So okay. I, that's where I kind of added it up got to it. 35. But uh, I, I'd say that probably the most significant, uh, it wasn't exactly a moment, but a, a series of uh, efforts that we made uh, on, a, on one particular program that I managed uh, which was a program called the Joint Light Tactical Vehicle. It's a vehicle that's going to replace the Humvee, uh, uh, or at least a substantial portion of the Humvees that provide tactical mobility uh, for our soldiers and Marines. Uh, and when I took over that program, uh, it had been uh, having some issues. Uh, Congress had taken away all the money that was going to be used for development. I had a team that I was taking on that was incredibly talented and dedicated uh, but but they were disillusioned because they were afraid that a lot of their efforts had been in vain. Uh, and we were able to sit down and very creatively come up with an aggressive plan, which uh, I think really took the best from American industry. Uh, and we were able to show Congress and the Army leadership and the Marine Corps leadership that we had a plan that was going to deliver a capability that was a significant leap ahead and to do it on a timeline that was faster than uh, we had certainly imagined. Uh, and so over the course of the next, really, what has now been almost 10 years since that happened, I guess it's, uh, I'm thinking about it right, I think that was about the fall of 2012. Uh, and today, uh, our soldiers have that vehicle. And that's a program that came in about 25% under budget and right on schedule. And uh, that experience of, of drafting and driving that strategy along with a really talented team building that team and, and, and driving that program forward and then seeing the promises that we've made, the promises we've made both to our soldiers as well as the American people, delivering on those promises, uh, I think was, was probably something I'll always look back on fondly. Uh, and, and that's a, you know, I, I realize I could talk about, you know, deployments uh, to the Middle East. Uh, there's lots of things I've done operationally that, that stick out as well. But from, a, from, a, from the profession that I've taken on for the last 20 years of my military career, this, this, this idea of driving value and delivering capability, that's probably the one that really sticks out. Sorry, I love that. And we have about a couple minutes left, sir. So I, I wonder if we could shift gears for a minute. With all the things that you've done in your 33 
your career, I gotta imagine that there's been some kind of impact on your family, your wife, your kids. How have you been able to navigate balancing the needs of your job, all the deployments, and the needs of your family and the kids, and you know all the things that you're required to do as a husband and a father? You know, I, I that's a that's a superb question, Paul. I, I frequently in leadership classes, you'll hear folks stand up in front of a young uh, a group of young officers, and they'll say. Look, uh, in my career, uh, I, I lost my family, uh, I ignored my family, I'm divorced now, uh, and I wish I'd done it differently. And that leader that was talking to you was the one that had kind of made it to the top. Right. Uh, and, and I've committed that, that for my family, uh, I'm going to make it to the end of my military career so that I've got, you know, uh, I'm going to end it with the family that I started with. And so... Uh, my wife and I uh, this summer uh, are going to reach uh, 30 years of marriage. Wow! And our kids uh, have done pretty well. We I don't think we've moved as much as many military families, but the family separation, the demands of the job, those are things that uh, I think very much do take a toll. Uh, and what I won't tell young leaders is that there is no sacrifice that's required. Uh, there is sacrifice, and we ask an incredible amount of our families. Uh, we ask for, uh, for, you know, and, and when I talk to my, I now have a 16-year-old and a 23-year-old, they absolutely remember the times that I wasn't there for them. Uh, and I continue to work to try to build those relationships. Uh, and probably the best thing I've ever done for my family is by giving and modeling a loving relationship between myself and my wife and that commitment that both of us have uh, to our soldiers. My wife's done a wonderful job over the years volunteering with veterans organizations, serving in the unit, and they've been able to see that. But the reality is is that you can only balance so much, and there is some sacrifice that's required. And especially, I would say, uh, this weekend, looking yes. forward to Memorial Day on Monday, yes. as we remember those who've paid that ultimate sacrifice and soldiers that we've all served with, uh, it, it, we realize there is some sacrifice uh, to service and, uh, and families pay that price. And, and we're going to acknowledge, uh, the loss of so many that have dedicated their lives to this country. Amen. Well, sir, you know, I have the privilege of being friends with you on Facebook and, you know, over the years, I've known you since you were a Lieutenant Colonel and I have constantly followed you and watched your career and how you engage with your family. And, you know, like you said, you keep your family very, very close and you model what that is to your wife and to your kids. And so I want to thank you personally for the example that you set for me as a young officer watching you grow up through the ranks. And I've tried to follow what you have done. So, sir, thank you for that. And thank you for coming on the program today. It has been an honor and a privilege speaking with you today. It's my pleasure. God bless you, Paul. And with your mission, uh, hopefully, you, you've touched some lives through this, uh, through the mission that you have here on the radio, and I know uh, in your ministry. And uh, I'm so thankful for you and what you do as well. Thanks. Thank you, sir. When we come back from the break, we'll reflect on the lessons of servant leadership that we've heard from today's guests. Stay with us. We'll be right back. If you're interested in connecting with Dr. Paul McCullough or interested in being featured on the show, contact Jacob Media Partners via LinkedIn. Now, back to Serving Our Nation. 
Welcome back to Serving Our Nation on News Talk 1400 WOND. I'm your host, Reverend Dr. Paul McCullough, and as we close out today's show, let's just briefly think about what we've heard from our guests, these two incredible individuals that have just magnificent careers, things that just make you be in awe of what they've done. When you look at the area of serving people in business and in the workplace, I love what we heard from Ralph Galati, where he talked about mentoring others. When he was a prisoner of war in that Vietnam camp, he said 30 people spoke into his life and mentored him and helped him understand what it's like to be a father, a husband, how to properly lead others, just all kinds of leadership lessons. And when he left that place and he went back to the world and reintegrated into his life, he used that to then mentor other people. And he did that all throughout his career, including at IBM and in education and on boards. And then you heard from General Bassett how in the workplace you can inspire others to be the best version of themselves by modeling behavior. As a leader, you're constantly on display. When you tell people that you want to be a servant leader, they hear it, but then they're going to be watching you closely to see if the audio matches the video, if your actions match up with what you're saying. And then when you look at how you can serve people in your community, you heard Ralph talk about how in business and in your community, you want to be flexible. You want to be agile. And He has a very strong mission of advocating for veterans. You heard him talk about now, and he's in a different phase of life, but he's focused a lot of his energies, and almost like the keynote of what he's doing is everything around veterans. That's where he's focusing his energy, and that's just what his passion is. But there's a thousand other things that you can do in the community with things that you're passionate about. And when you talk about serving people through faith, I loved Ralph's Uh, testimony where he said that somebody threw a stick with a note inside of his cell and let him know that there was another American in there with him and it, it encouraged him to keep the faith because the truth of the matter is we are not meant to do life alone and there's always somebody there that can come alongside you to encourage you to help you keep going to help you just keep that faith. And when you talk about serving in the military, you heard from both leaders that people see something special inside of you that you might not even see yourself. You heard from General Bassett talk about wanting to deliver value. And regardless of what grade you might be in the military and what rank you might be in the military, it's incumbent upon us as leaders to deliver that value, to bring things in on cost, on schedule, and at a high level of performance. And then finally, when you talk about serving your family, Ralph's been married for 50 years. And General Bassett, I think he said, was approaching 30 years of marriage. And so both of them are managing balance, right? You heard Ralph talk about, well, he's married to a saint, and that might be true, but it's about balance and making sure that you are giving proper time to your wife, to your kids, that even though there might be a measure of sacrifice, that you are spending that time with them and you're making sure that they feel loved and that you're still there for them. And so in bringing all that to a close, I just want to briefly share with you about how when you put good into the universe, good comes back to you, right? Each week we talk about that. 
And so just last week, uh, a good friend of mine, Chris McCall, who was on the program a few weeks ago, it happened to be his birthday last weekend. And a number of us got together and gave him a nice birthday celebration as part of our men's group at the church. Chris is the leader of the men's group and wanted to honor him for his birthday. And for no other reason than Chris is a good man. He's the leader of our group, and we wanted to honor him and do something good for him. And when good comes back to you, uh, not long after that, Chris then invited us to participate in a celebration with him, to participate in a Memorial Day barbecue with him. So my point to you is that always err on the side of being good to other people, of serving other people, of loving other people, because it does come back to you. Listen, next week, two really special guests. I've got Chaplain Justin Cohen. He's an urban missionary to veterans in Philadelphia, and he's also a chaplain to multiple VSOs, veteran service organizations. I also have Miss Diane Rumley, and she's the co-founder of Support Military Families and the spouse of Dr. Stephen Rumley, the other co-founder. I want to remind you to sign up for my Spotify and Apple Podcast mailing list. And you can do that through my website at reverenddrpaul.com. That's R-E-V-D-R-Paul.com. Just check out the show tab for previous episodes of this program. And you can also follow me on all the different social media things. There's links at the bottom of the site. As you go about your week, no matter where you're at or what you're doing, always ask, how can I help? Thanks for listening and join us again next week and happy Memorial Day weekend.